I would like to start this episode out by asking you a question. Now, I need to set the stage a little bit. Imagine that you were about to lead an army against the greatest empire in the world. An empire that has existed for hundreds of years and that stretches basically the entire length of the known world, at least according to you. An empire that has absolutely crushed any and all opposition up to this point. And imagine that these battles you're about to fight against this empire has the potential to alter the course of human history. Now here's the question. How would you prepare to face this empire? Maybe you would train your troops and strategize with your generals, send out some scouting parties to see enemy troop movements, get a lay of the land, maybe cut off trade routes and supply lines to destabilize the economy. What about abandoning your army and walking hundreds of miles in the opposite direction through the Sahara Desert with no road to guide you and basically no food or water? Would you do that? That's what Alexander the Great did before he went on to conquer the Persian Empire in the 3rd century BC. And why would he do that? I mean, this journey had no strategic value, but it was of immense importance to Alexander, one of the most influential people in human history, one of the greatest strategic military minds, one of the most successful military commanders to have ever lived. Why would he put himself at such risk for something that had no strategic value? Well, it's simple. Alexander was trying to hear the voice of a god. My name is Logan Reynolds. You're listening to Routes Unbound. On today's episode, we're traveling to the Sahara Desert, to the oasis of Siwa, ancient home of the Oracle of Ammon. Stick around. The story of Alexander and the Oracle is a fascinating tale. But first, let's talk about Siwa. I have a confession to make. The first time I encountered the Oasis of Siwa was in Ubisoft's RPG video game Assassin's Creed Origins, which is set during the reign of Julius Caesar. So you can imagine my surprise when I discovered that the real Siwa is not only still a bustling oasis, but that much of it still looks the same as it did back in 49 BC when the fictional Medjay Bayek was using parkour and a hidden blade to assassinate members of the Order of the Ancients. Siwa is an oasis, which means that in the vast expanse of the Saharan Desert, there's this little area. It's about 50 miles long, 20 miles wide, and evidence suggests it's been inhabited since at least 10,000 BC. Today, around 30,000 people live in Siwa, and most of them are what many people would refer to as the Berber people an ethnic group that's been in North Africa for a long time. When I was doing research for this episode, I learned that the term Berber is actually derived from the Greek term for barbarians, and 
In some cases, it can actually be seen as kind of derogatory. These people refer to themselves as the Amaziach, which, if there are any Amaziach out there listening to this, I apologize profusely for my terrible pronunciation. Anyways, that's how they refer to themselves, so that's how I will refer to them during this episode. Now, the Amaziach people inhabit much of North Africa, but what's interesting about those who live in Siwa is that because of the isolation of the oasis, they have developed their own language, Siwi. Which is fascinating because it's such a small people group. I mean, we're talking about an area 50 miles long, 20 miles wide, in the middle of desert, and they have their own language, their own culture. And when I say it's out there by itself, it is over 350 miles west of Cairo, basically all the way on the other side of the country, right by the border of Libya. And until the 1980s, the only way to reach it, essentially, was by camel. If you were to visit Siwa, you would most likely drive in on a bus from Cairo. A long bus ride, I'd might add. It's usually an overnight journey. Because again, if you're like me coming from the United States, you don't have this huge, intricate, well-funded interstate system. There is a road from Cairo to Siwa, but it is not I-20. Pulling off the main road, coming out of the desert, the first thing that you would see would be the salt baths. These are rectangular pools of bright turquoise water just chilling on the outside of town. And these baths are said to bring medical benefits to those bathing in them. And what's really fascinating about them, like any other salt water, is that they are so, so salty that you, you couldn't even really drown in them if you tried. You just float. It's way saltier than the sea. And if you look at aerial views of these salt baths, it looks like almost like a science experiment. But generally, the salt baths are a big draw for tourists, and there's a lot of them, because the oasis is essentially just a line of large lakes. And the road into town uh, basically cuts straight through the first lake. So on either side of you is this super salty blue water. Once you reach the other side of this first lake is when you would begin to see these tightly grouped palm trees and crops of dates and olives, and then these mud brick houses, the things you would expect in an oasis. But then as you move through these palm trees, you come across Gabal Dakrur, the highest point in the area. It's a three-peaked mountain riddled with caves that have been in use for thousands of years. And yes, I'm probably pronouncing it slightly wrong. Just hang in there with me. And when I say been in use for thousands of years, I really mean it. And that's one of the first things that really grabbed my attention about this place, is that not only has it been inhabited for so long, but it has been inhabited in the same way for so long. You know, there haven't been all these mass migrations and huge wars displacing people. And sure, the Amaziach may not have been the first people in the oasis, uh, but they have been there for a really long time. And it's been just them, this one group, isolated from the outside world, persisting throughout the centuries. When you reach Gabal Dakru, start to head north along a sand-covered road, through a forest of palm trees, and soon you'll arrive at Cleopatra's Spring. This is a natural spring that's been built up to be perfectly round and, and very clear. It almost looks like a giant water well, 
with a stone staircase that goes right down into it. And it dates to the 5th century BC. The reason it's called Cleopatra's Spring, as you might have guessed, is because legend has it that the queen herself bathed in it when she visited Siwa. She isn't the only visitor to dip in the water over the years. Apparently, there were some German soldiers who went skinny dipping, much to the horror of the locals, when the Germans occupied the oasis during the Second World War. Herodotus, uh, the famed Greek historian, referred to this place as the Eye of the Sun. And as an American who grew up in a small town in Texas, the idea of being in places where multiple legendary historical figures have walked is just unreal. My hometown is only like 100 years old. My country is only like two and a half centuries old. And while there were people in the Americas before my country was founded, there were lots of stories and figures of interest. Sadly, most of them have been totally lost or erased from history. In places like Texas, you can really only go back a couple of hundred years at best. But here, in Siwa, there is millennia of stories of history of people coming to this place, dipping in this pool. I can't help but feel that if you were to take a swim, you might feel some sort of connection to the past that you really can't get by just looking at pictures. Anyways, after dipping in the pool, you would continue north along the same road and come to the ruins of the temple of Umubayid, which was a site connected to the temple of the Oracle, which we'll talk about in a minute. And it was once used in certain Oracle-type ceremonies. There's not much there today. Uh, a Siwan governor blew it up in the 1800s, apparently, in order to clear the way to build a mosque. Uh, there is one section of one wall with inscriptions still intact. But if you continue yet further on the road, Further into the oasis, uh, you'll come across a small canal and a walled garden, and then you would find yourself at the footsteps of the Temple of the Oracle. This is where the magic happened, or whatever you would call it. It's a well-preserved site with most of the wall still intact, and it sits atop a large, flat, rocky space with lots of steps leading up to it. And what I think is so cool is that there is no giant asphalt parking lot or cheesy souvenir stand here. The ruins of the temple sit as if still undiscovered, almost, unadulterated by the tourism economy. And yet the complex is still very accessible. You can still walk up inside of it and see it and explore it. And apparently, up until recently, some of the locals even lived inside of the ruins. At the bottom of the hill where the temple rests, uh, there are still houses. And so the temple itself still feels like it is part of the oasis as it surely was back in its heyday. Now, from the temple, heading west, you would reach the center of town. And as remote and ancient as the oasis is, the town of Siwa does have modern amenities. Modern structures can be found. There's cars, electricity, plumbing, banks, coffee shops, museums, a couple of fancy desert resorts, all contained in the same desert architecture. But as you get more into the middle of the city, there is one other big ancient thing. The fortress of Shali, which in the language of Siwi simply means home. And it was a fortress constructed in the 12th to 13th century, and up until it was destroyed by rainfall in the 1920s, most of the people in the oasis lived within its walls. It's made out of kerchief, which is a combination of clay and salt and rock. So naturally, they used all of these materials that they had readily available to them in the oasis. Today, the ruins are this 
sprawling labyrinth of these kerchief walls in various states of disrepair, and it towers over the more recent structures of Siwa. And just imagine coming upon this structure in the 1600s. Imagine traveling hundreds of miles through the desert, nothing in sight. Suddenly you come upon this oasis, these beautiful blue lakes, these wonderful palm trees. And in the middle of this oasis is just this towering structure where everyone lives. A restoration project was started in 2018, which aims to bring more tourism to the site and try to restore the chalet to some of its former glory. So the fortress of Shali is where Siwans lived. But what about where they died? Just north of the fortress, maybe a kilometer away, is what is known as the Mountain of the Dead. And it's a small mountain, basically in the middle of town, which is covered head to toe in tombs, some over 2,000 years old. There's over 1,500 of them, actually. So old were many of these tombs that they were raided in Roman times and then reused over again throughout the centuries with little regard to the original inhabitants. So imagine a graveyard so old that some of the original plots were dug up and new people were buried in them, and then hundreds of years later they were dug up and new people were buried in them. Basically every inch of real estate on this rocky hill has been used to bury people. And if you look at pictures, it is a little weird looking. And it can be visited today, just like pretty much everything in the oasis. And again, just like the temple of the Oracle, there's no big asphalt parking lot or air-conditioned gift shop or gun-toting guards, just ancient, empty tombs. As you move west, away from the Mountain of the Dead, away from the busier areas of the oasis, you would come out to the next lake, where the deep turquoise waters contrast with the sun-baked sand. And beyond them, the palm trees extend in every direction, until suddenly, they stop. And then beyond them, is the Great Sand Sea. Yeah, it's really called that. So, the Sahara is this big old desert in North Africa. Everyone knows that. But within the Sahara are different topographical locations, right? And one of them being the Great Sand Sea, which is this huge area in Libya and Egypt that is nothing but giant sand dunes. No rock formations, no roads, nothing. Just giant dunes. When you think about a scene from a movie where the characters are trapped in an endless desert or somewhere like Tatooine in the Star Wars universe, that's the image that comes to mind with the Great Sansi. And the Siwa Oasis backs up right on the edge of this vast expanse as kind of a last outpost of humanity. And there's something beautiful and incredibly unsettling about that idea. The story of Alexander and the Oracle left its mark on Siwa and on history. But before we get into it, we need to know the major players. Alexander and the Oracle, of course. But first, there's Amun, the god of Egypt. Amun, as a deity, actually has his own long story arc. 
He started out in the second millennium BC, a long, long time ago, as a local fertility god worshipped by the Egyptians who lived in Thebes. And at this time, Amun represented hiddenness or obscurity. This essentially meant that he could be attributed to whatever aspect of creation one might want to put him with. Fast forward several hundred years to the new kingdom of Egypt, and Amun had grown in popularity to the point that he was merged with Ra, the sun god, to become Amun-Ra, the self-created one, king of the gods, who had created everything, including himself. Amun-Ra became the most worshipped and most powerful god in all of Egypt. To be honest, the whole Egyptian pantheon, much like its Greek counterpart, is so complex and convoluted that we could easily digress here. So let's just say that Amun was a big deal. So big that he caught on even in nearby Greece, where he was combined not with Ra, but with Zeus, to become Zeus Amun. This is starting to sound as confusing as a comic book plotline. I apologize. So naturally, the oracle of Amun, the one who speaks on behalf of the king of the gods, would be seen as an incredibly important person, at least according to the Greeks or the Egyptians. Now, oracles existed all over the ancient world, and they spoke for many different gods, and oracles were a big deal. Kings and generals would consult oracles about whether or not to invade somewhere or attack over here or, or trying to make big financial decisions or political decisions. So you can imagine the immense weight that the words of this person, this oracle of Amon, the king of the gods, would hold in the ancient world. So what about Alexander? His story is as long as his life was short, and we could probably do a whole podcast, really, uh, on, on his life if this was a history podcast, which it's not, but maybe we'll go to a location one day that talks a little bit more about him. Anyways, a little background. Alexander the Great's father, Philip II was king of Macedonia, which was a kingdom in northern Greece. And Philip II, he conquered some city-states, he made Greece a big deal on the world stage, he was very successful, and he had this immense desire to conquer Persia, which was the big dog of the entire world at this point in human history. But before he could do that, he was assassinated by one of his own royal bodyguards. And when this happened, Alexander was made king on the spot at 20 years old. And he inherited everything from his father, including a giant well-trained army. And even though Alexander had a lot handed to him, he still went on to become the greatest military commander possibly ever. He wasted no time in furthering his father's plans. He started tearing stuff up, securing borders, executing relatives, putting down revolts. Yeah, did I mention he wasn't like a good guy, but he did a lot of big stuff. So don't misconstrue what I'm trying to say here. I'm not trying to say that I think he was a great person. Anyways, after Alexander tied up some of the loose ends in Greece, he set off to free much of Asia Minor, which would have been you know, modern day Turkey, uh, from Persian control. And he just steamrolled for the most part. He took back Asia Minor, he conquered the Levant, modern-day Israel, and then he went on to Egypt. And he did all of this in his 20s, and in a very short amount of time. So in 332 BC, Alexander and his army come to Egypt, and the Egyptians, they welcome him for the most part. They weren't so keen on the Persians ruling over them. 
And Alexander, wanting to keep in the Egyptians' good graces, made sacrifices to the gods in Memphis. And a big reason for this is that when you conquer a people, one of the biggest threats that you face is revolt. So people don't like being bossed around by other people, naturally. One way to curb this is to honor the customs and traditions and religions of the people you conquer. So it makes sense that Alexander would offer sacrifices in Memphis. And after that, he sets his sights on Siwa. At this point, Alexander has done a lot and been incredibly successful, but he hasn't even really gotten started yet. Persia is still yet to be conquered up to this point. Really, up to this stage in his military career, he is just taking care of the things standing in the way. So this is kind of a pivotal point in the story of Alexander's campaign, because after this, he plans to march into Assyria and really begin striking at the heart of the Persian Empire. And of course, as I spoiled it earlier, he does succeed. And there are a lot of thoughts about how Alexander changed history. A lot of smarter people than me have been talking about it for thousands of years, actually. One of the big things, of course, was that Alexander's victory over the Persian Empire spread Greek culture and language throughout the known world. In a lot of ways, it also took the pressure of this giant Eastern Empire off of Greece and helped give rise to Western civilization. And like many things in history, so many things had to go right for Alexander for it to happen that way, which makes the story of the Oracle of Amon all that more interesting. So as with most of ancient history, the facts and the fiction about the story have been commingled in such a way that we'll really never know for sure how it all actually went down. Oftentimes, quote, history was used more as propaganda than actually keeping track of the facts of what happened. So everything I'm about to tell you, uh, you know, take with a grain of salt, but still interesting nonetheless. The story goes like this. So Alexander and his entourage set off from Memphis. And keep in mind, he doesn't take his whole army with him. He leaves a lot of people back in Memphis, uh, just takes a small group of followers across the desert. And this trip that he's making to see the Oracle of Ammon, he's actually following in the footsteps of someone named Heracles, which you may have heard of. Heracles was considered the son of Zeus in Greek mythology. And it was told that Heracles once visited the Oracle of Ammon. So in a lot of ways, Alexander is following in the footsteps of these heroes of old. It would almost be as if someone like Abraham Lincoln was following in the footsteps of George Washington. Only, I guess George Washington was a real person. So maybe a better example would be like JFK following in the footsteps of Paul Bunyan. I feel like this analogy is breaking down. Anyways, like we've established, Siwa is deep in the desert. As hard as it is to get to today, it was much, much harder back then. The famous Greek philosopher Plutarch wrote this about the road to Siwa. This was a long and arduous journey, which was beset by two especial dangers. The first was the lack of water, of which there was none to be found along the route for many days' march. The second arises if a strong south wind should overtake the traveler as he is crossing the vast expanse of deep, soft sand. And what Plutarch is hinting at here is that with the right wind in the right direction, or I guess the wrong wind in the wrong direction, the road to Siwa 
disappears. All of the markers, previous tracks from other people traveling, it all gets erased by the desert. And this is what apparently happened to Alexander and his followers. They were effectively lost in the Sahara with limited supplies. Now, there are a few differing accounts of how they found their way to Siwa without dying. One states that ravens flew above them and guided the way to the oasis. Another claims that snakes appeared and guided them to safety. Either way, the idea is that Alexander had some sort of divine intervention in order to find this oracle. That's essentially what the story is trying to say. Now, once they reached Siwa, Alexander was immediately greeted by the high priest at the temple of Ammon. And this is where it gets interesting, because the claim was made by some, chiefly by Alexander, that the priest, upon seeing Alexander, greeted him and referred to him as the son of Zeus Ammon. It's basically like the son of, of God. Plutarch debates this, and he says that what really happened is the priest wasn't the best at speaking Greek and really meant to refer to him simply as dear child or as son, but instead accidentally bestowed on him a divine identity. You know, we'll never know what really happened, like I said, uh, but later this encounter would be referenced when Alexander would claim towards the end of his rule that he truly was descended from the gods. If you ask me, Plutarch's story makes a lot more sense but it's probably not the best for propaganda purposes, which is obviously why Alexander went with the first story. So after that initial greeting, Alexander alone is welcomed into the inner chamber of the temple where he receives his revelation from the oracle. And we don't know what he asked or what the answers were. Some accounts claim that he asked two questions. The first was whether his father's assassins, basically people who paid off that royal bodyguard, escaped. And the second question that he supposedly asked is whether or not he would conquer the whole world. To which the oracle replied, yes. But just think about the implications of this moment for a second. We can't say for sure what Alexander thought about all this oracle and God stuff, but he most likely believed it, right? As most people did back then. So what you have is arguably the most powerful and influential person on the planet at the time, thinking that he's interacting with not just a god, but the self-created god, the king of the gods. And would whatever words that were spoken in that inner chamber have some sort of influence on what happened next? I mean, what if the oracle had said, Alexander, whatever you do, don't try to conquer Persia. Would Alexander have listened? If he did, if he had spared the Persian Empire, would the world even exist the way it does today? Would it be better off? Worse? Chances are, based on how stubborn Alexander seems to have been about his need to conquer Persia, he probably wouldn't have listened to Zeus Amon himself if he had told him not to conquer Persia. But would it have caused him to question himself just enough? Would there have been that seed of doubt in the back of Alexander's mind as he's going and leading these armies in these battles? Would he be maybe a little more risk adverse? Or maybe the oracle gave Alexander the assurance he needed, the confidence, which he of course already had, to march against King Darius and conquer the Persians. I am absolutely no historian, and it's probably quite a bit of a stretch to say it 
but in a way, the entire fate of the ancient world could have rested on what that oracle had to say. A big claim, I know. But what I think is so interesting is that, of course, most of, if not every one of us today, we don't look back at the story and think of the oracle as really speaking for a god. It was just a person, right? Like this oracle, whoever they were, do you think they knew the influence that they were having over history? Because, I mean, without Alexander the Great, you know, the Greeks don't really do their thing, not in the same way, at least. There would be no Hellenistic period, which means no Greek New Testament, which means possibly no Holy Roman Empire and Catholic Church, no Pope, at least not in the way we know it. If Christianity does happen, maybe it would have gone east instead of west. Like I said, we don't know, but there are so many moments like this in history, like pivot points. And in this tiny little section in the middle of the Sahara, this little oasis, this little clump of lakes and palm trees, there's this encounter that has this immense potential. Plutarch claims that after the encounter, Alexander wrote to his mother, promising to explain to her what he heard in person when he returned home. But he never made it back to her. And what the oracle spoke to Alexander remains one of the great mysteries of ancient history. If the whole story even happened. But apparently the experience had a profound impact on the conqueror. Afterwards, Alexander began to associate himself with the deity of Zeus Amon, much to the disdain of basically everyone around him. And it was evident that by the end of his life, Alexander thought of himself as a god and demanded his subjects treat him as such. Now, whether or not he actually thought of himself as a god or it was simply his way of exercising his power, we can't know for sure. But without that encounter with the Oracle of Amon in the Siwa Oasis, Alexander probably wouldn't have made that claim, at least not as boldly as he did. And he would make it back to his army, of course, and then march into Assyria and defeat King Darius, toppling the Persian Empire. He would make it all the way to India, actually, before turning around. And then he died at the age of 32 in Babylon. And shortly after his death, his empire was divided, split up among his generals. And when he passed, the secret of the oracle died with him. Today, the people of the Siwa Oasis are Muslim, like most people in North Africa. And the temple of Amon sits as a relic from a long forgotten time. But much of the rest of the oasis looks as it probably has throughout history. And while tourism has been slowly picking up since the roads were put in in the 80s, it's far from being the area's main industry. And while tourism is, of course, beneficial to the local economy and it creates jobs and it brings in money, I wonder if maybe a slow and steady growth of visitors isn't such a bad idea. The cultural uniqueness of places like Siwa reminds me of like some isolated ecosystem on a remote island. Something fascinating that has been growing through the centuries without any sort of outside influence. It doesn't need to be changed or improved for visitors' benefits. Siwa doesn't need Facebook or McDonald's or shopping mall. 
or better parking. We humans are always searching for knowledge outside of ourselves. In 300 BC, we had oracles speaking for the gods. In the Middle Ages, the Pope commanded the attention of the world. And even in the sacred world today, there are self-proclaimed prophets predicting elections, garnering millions of followers on the internet. And in the secular world, scientists now act as modern-day oracles, making claims about the future of space and the planet and the climate and human biology. Self-help gurus claim to know the way to personal enlightenment or financial growth. What I'm trying to say is, Alexander wasn't stupid for seeking out the guidance of the oracle. He simply believed what humans believed at that time in history, or at least pretended to. And I think that the element of human psychology that was present in his motivations is still at work today. Humans, we, we have a desire to connect with the unseen, with the spiritual, with the unknown, with something beyond and bigger than ourselves. Because it is all unknown, isn't it? And we have ideas of what will happen in the future. And those of us who follow a religion, we're almost certain that Jesus will return or that we'll be reincarnated. But we don't know for sure. Like, none of us really know, right? We have faith, but we don't know. And scientists can look at their data and make informed calculations about where we're headed and what the future looks like, but, but we don't know for sure. The future is beyond ourselves. And in a way, I think that Siwa is a reminder that we're all walking through the desert as a species, collectively searching for any voice that might tell us what lies ahead. Our oracles may change, but they're always there. And we trust them because we need something to trust, something to assure us that we can be victorious, that we're not going to destroy ourselves. So we listen, even if it leads us to delusion, even if, in the end, we come to think of ourselves as gods. This episode of Routes Unbound was written and produced by me, Logan Reynolds. Hey, if you're enjoying the show, one thing that would really help out is a rating or a review. It helps people know that we're legit, that we're here to stay, and that other people are enjoying the show. And until next time, don't forget to slow down, be human, take it easy, and keep exploring. Keep exploring.